Well, hey, good morning. If you would, make your way back. Grab your Bibles. Don't sit down yet. If you are able, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's stand. If you're able, grab the book of Acts. Open up in your Bible to the book of Acts. Uh, If you're just joining us, we're going through the first eight chapters of Acts this summer for our summer series. It's called The Compelling Community, and we're going to talk about why the church is so compelling this morning. Uh, Just full disclosure, as you make your way to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, uh, it's page 1082. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word. If you see one of these blue Bibles, grab one of those, open up to page 1082. If you don't have a Bible, just take it home with you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word, uh, the teaching of the apostles uh, for your own. And if you, also full disclosure, y'all, okay, so the book of Acts, it has like a lot of suffering in it. Okay, there's like death and suffering, but today, this short passage is like, the clouds clear, and it's like a perfect 70 degree, slightly breezy day, and there's nothing wrong, and the church is perfect Okay, so we'll get to the hard stuff next week. We'll get to the persecution and the need for boldness, and we'll get to the martyrdoms later. But today, if you can, let's just enjoy a sunny, breezy, 70-degree day in the church's life, if that makes sense. So with that in mind, step into the sunlight with me. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Luke writes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray together? Holy Spirit, we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior, Lord, that our church and the church in the Rogue Valley would be everything that you desire it to be. Lord, that we would be truly a compelling community. In Jesus' name, amen. So what makes a truly compelling community? You know, the kind of community, a group of people that is just magnetic. People can't help but want to be a part of it. They're pulled into it like a magnet. Uh, The early church in the book of Acts, as you see right here in your passage, it was that kind of compelling community. People were just drawn to it. If you were to look in the verses right before our passage, 3,000 people had just gotten saved and baptized on Pentecost. It is a magnetic community. And now in verse 42, what do all of these new Christians do? They don't know their right hand from their left hand theologically. And what do they do? They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowshipping, to breaking bread with each other, and this enigmatic phrase, the prayers. But what makes a really compelling community in today's world? What do you think is the most compelling community right now? Uh, Arthur Brooks is a Harvard professor. He studies happiness and he teaches at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, He's a fascinating writer. He has a podcast called The Art of Happiness, and he's wondering why so many Americans are suffering with habitual loneliness. Uh, 
In the last couple of years, you know, the, the rate of Americans who socialize has dramatically decreased. Loneliness is on the rise. And fun fact, who is most likely to be lonely? What age group? Anybody want to take a guess? Who's most lonely? Two groups of people. Number one, single people. And number two, what age demographic? You think it, loneliness goes up or down the older you get? Young adults in their 20s have the highest rates of loneliness right now. You could say they're disproportionately affected right now by what's happened to our society. So Arthur Brooks, right, very smart man from Harvard, is trying to figure out what's going on with us. Why are we so lonely? And one of the things he points out in his article in The Atlantic is he says, look, there are other times where communities become compelling and there's a broader sense of togetherness, even in the midst of something traumatic. One of his examples is London during World War II. What happens when the bombs start dropping on London? The people of London rally together. And there's a deeper sense of community in the midst of something difficult. Uh, more recently, he talks about having gone to Phuket, Thailand in 2004, right after the tsunami had taken thousands of lives, but the people in Thailand had rallied together and they even had joy, he says. But then interestingly, he talks about the world that you and I live in today. He writes, instead of coming together, emerging evidence suggests that we are in the midst of a long-term crisis of habitual loneliness in which relationships were severed and never reestablished. Many people, perhaps including you, are still wandering alone without the company of friends and loved ones to help rebuild their life. So I asked you this morning, do you have a roadmap out of that malaise? Do you have a way out? He's suggesting that many of us are in a state of loneliness. Uh, many of us don't know how to interact socially as much anymore. And many of us have lost the appetite to get to know other people. But what hasn't gone away is our loneliness. So what I want to suggest to you is that what Acts chapter 2 has to tell us is a way out of the malaise that you and I are in. There is a way for the clouds to break and for the sun to shine and for the breeze to come back. But you've got to walk into the kind of life that the Bible depicts for you and me. The world and the Bible reconcile in a place called reality, okay? And the Bible is best applied in the world that you and I live in, in the real world. So if that describes you at all, or if you're just trying to figure out where you are in life, what I want to suggest is take these four things we're going to look at in this passage and just use it as a way to say, am I Am I doing this? Am I living into this? Am I experiencing what the Holy Spirit would have me experience? So what are those four things? We're going to find them all there in our short passage. Look at verse 42. This is going to be our outline. The four things, the four ways out of the malaise. Number one, when Christians come together, they do what? Number one, devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Number two, to what? Fellowship. Number three, to what? Breaking bread. And number four, what? the prayers. All right, well, let's take that, and we're going to see how those four things actually are explained right here in our passage. Luke's going to tell you exactly what those four things mean. Number one, devoted to the apostles' teaching. Well, who are the apostles? Why doesn't it say they devote themselves to the New Testament? Why does it say they devote themselves to the New Testament? Because it hasn't been written yet, y'all. <laughs> the apostles have just started the mission, right? Pentecost just happened. And who are the apostles? Well, the apostles are described as Jesus's friends. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, no longer do I call you servants, I have called you friends. 
Later on, Jesus can look at these 12 apostles, 11 at this point in the Gospel of John, and he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Whatever sins you forgive are forgiven and whatever are not forgiven are not forgiven. And then on the day of Pentecost, on the apostles fall flames like tongues and they proclaim the message of Jesus. The book of Revelation tells us that in the new heavens and the new earth, that the 12 pillars of the new heavens and the new earth are gonna be four, 12 pillars. And on each of the 12 pillars are the names of the what? The 12 apostles. What I'm building up for you to recognize is the apostles are not just your run-of-the-mill normal Christians. Their names are literally engraved on the columns of the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus was alive, he lived in community with fellowship with these men. And when he ascended into heaven, he said, go proclaim the message of the kingdom of God. And they did. And thousands were saved. And then as their life went on, they wrote down their writings and they passed their message on in writing. And now you and I have the apostles' teachings. We can know what those 12 men said and believed about Jesus Christ because we have the teachings of the apostles. It's in your lap in front of you. So no, we can't talk to the apostles. No, they don't come and talk to us, but we have everything that we need for life and godliness because they passed on the message to us in the New Testament. The New Testament is ultimately the writings and the message of the apostles. So how do you and I apply this? How do we get out of the malaise? Well, look down at verse 42. And you don't have to say it out loud, but just ask yourself, would anyone in your life describe you as devoted to reading and knowing God's word? Would someone say that you are devoted to the apostles' teaching? Notice it doesn't say that they occasionally read it. They gave their life to it. They devoted their lives to understanding the apostles' teaching. You know, uh, the, the sign, you know, to me that you're really reading Scripture correctly is there in verse 43. Uh, verse 43 wants you to recognize the apostles are not just run-of-the-mill Christians. They've got something special about them. They have a commission from Jesus himself. Look at verse 43. It says, All and wonder came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The apostles had unique spiritual power to heal and create miracles. You can read about them in the book of Acts. The very next passage is about that very miracle happening. But how did people respond to the apostles during this time? If you were to step back when this was being lived out in real life, people had awe. They were fearful. They were like, whoa, these are holy men. They have something to tell us. And we should take it seriously because that layman is now running around. I should listen intently. Friends, that is the posture that you and I take when we read Scripture. It's holy. It is awesome in the fullest sense of that term. It should spark awe and wonder in you. Part of the malaise is getting into God's word because God's word will tell you all kinds of things about living in reality. Number one, it'll tell you that humanity is sinful. I don't get an amen on that one, y'all. That's the easiest amen there should ever be. Have you met people? Amen. amen. Thank you. What? Amen. But it also, the New Testament will tell you incredible things like forgive your enemies, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, do what? Rant about them on social media. No, what does it say? Turn the other cheek also. 
If someone sins against you seven times, is that it? Seventy-seven times. The New Testament is full of practical advice for life, and it's the most real and honest way you could ever live. It's not just a relationship with God. It's the best explanation of reality you'll ever find. Christian, are you devoted to the teachings of the apostles? Part of a, one of the signs of health in a church is how much they have a hunger for God's word. And I'm so thankful that our church has that hunger for God's word. But are you devoted? So number one, how's your Bible reading going? And are you reading it with a sense of awe that this really is the Holy Spirit speaking to me right now? The second thing, of course, that the early church you know, devotes themselves to is what? Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. To, and then what? What's the word there? The fellowship. In Greek, you've probably heard this word. I know you don't know a lot of Greek, but you probably have heard the word koinonia. Have you heard that word? Koinonia is the, the Bible term for deep community, right? A deep sense of partnership. You know, when we think of fellowship as sort of just simply, you know, drinking coffee together before or after church, that may or may not include fellowship. Fellowship is, um, think about it like this. Fellowship is when you take the mask off that everything's fine and you get real with somebody. You know how that can happen in a relationship? You're like, how's everything? And they're like, fine. And you're like, oh, cool, things are fine with me too. But eventually, you know, a relationship gets to a point where you're like, actually, everything's not fine. And they're like, yeah, it's not fine. And then you think, can I pray for you? And your relationship takes a different turn. There's a deeper kind of interaction. And fellowship in the Bible is that deeper sense of connecting with other people. How's your Bible reading going? Secondly, how's your fellowship How's our fellowship as a church? Well, what I want to suggest to you um, is I know that's a hard question. It's a hard question. And there's at least two reasons why it's hard for you and I to have genuine fellowship right now, like real fellowship. It can seem a little out of, out of reach. And there's two reasons. Number one, uh, we're all in a funk. <laughs> uh, Arthur Brooks, writing in that article from The Atlantic, How We Learned to Be Lonely, he writes that uh, we've learned how to be friends with each other. We've learned what it means to be friends. We've learned how to talk to people. He writes, he says, uh, uh, there's a survey just last year. American adults said it was harder than ever to form relationships. But the biggest reason we struggle to form relationships, it's not because we're concerned about disease transmission. That's not why social interaction's hard anymore. The number one reason that people gave is, quote, they didn't know what to say or how to interact. Have you ever seen that stupid movie, Ricky Bobby? You know, he's like, I don't know what to do with my hands when I talk. There's a sense of like, I've been to some dinner parties and it's like people forgot what to talk about. It's like, I don't know how to talk to people. <laughs> I forgot these social cues. Uh, Arthur Brooks comments, many of us have simply forgotten how to be friends. We've just forgotten how to be friends. So one reason we're struggling with real koinonia is number one, we're in a funk. Number two, the problem's not just with us. It's not just with you and me. You know, where else is the problem? With other people. Have you talked to humanity lately? Have you seen us? Other people are difficult. So not only are we going through our own struggles, other people are also going through their struggles and other people are really difficult. Don't just take my word for it. This comes from a very reputable source about people in the Rogue Valley. Okay, does anybody know who Pinto Kolvig is? Does anybody know that name? Pinto Kolvig. Pinto's his nickname. Uh, Pinto Kolvig grew up in Jacksonville as a kid. He would go on and he would famously become what? What's his career? Pinto Kolvig. He became Bozo the Clown 
the first original Bozo the Clown, and then he started working for a young animation studio called the Walt Disney Studios, and he became the first voice ever for Goofy and for Grumpy and Sleepy in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Have you ever seen Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? Do you know what Grumpy looks like? Pinto Kolvig, the voice actor from Jacksonville, would later on in his life, when asked how did he come up with those iconic voices, the voice of Goofy, y'all, it's from Jacksonville. The voice of Grumpy is from Jacksonville. Someone asked Pinto Kolvig how he got those voices. He said, well, I put all the hicks in the world into Goofy and all the mean old codgers of Jacksonville into Grumpy. <laughs> Some of those mean old codgers may still be living. They may be in the room or they may be living on your street. Other people can make it difficult, but friends, this is why it's so important to get into God's word. Because if you're like, I'm going to have fellowship and I'm going to care about my neighbors. Well, all it takes is your neighbor doing something you don't like. And all of a sudden you're like, man, forget that guy. But if you're in God's word daily and you're remembering to do things like forgive my debts as I forgive my debtors. And do everything I can to strive to maintain the bond of peace. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. You may actually find a supernatural power coming into you from God's word through the spirit actually love your neighbors, even if they are mean old codgers, <laughs> kind of like grumpy, right? So how can we cultivate koinonia, fellowship as a church? Right, that's a big question I've been thinking about. Uh, you know, obviously I'm pleading with you to read God's word every day. We focus on God's word in our services. We have Bible studies and discipleship groups, but how do we in encourage koinonia? How do we encourage fellowship? Well, I came up with two options and I thought I would pitch it to y'all, but then I figured I would just make the decision for you and hope that you agree with me, okay? So there's two options how we can cultivate real fellowship in the church. They're both biblical. You tell me which one you would prefer, okay? The first option is we could bring back the holy kiss. It's super biblical, and we ignore it to our detriment. Five books in the New Testament finish with, and don't forget to greet each other with the holy kiss. Romans ends that way. 1 Corinthians ends with, don't forget the holy kiss. 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, and Peter finishes 1 Peter, don't forget the kiss of love. So, you know, how can we have more fellowship together? We can all kiss each other at the service. And then I thought, I can't even get y'all to greet each other halfway through the service. You know, it was like, oh, I gotta talk to these humans around me. Imagine if I asked you to kiss each other. This is, you know, for the record, this is why men and women sat differently in different places at church. I don't know if that makes it better or worse for y'all, but. So I decided, no, I'm not going to ask people to do the holy kiss. Uh, you know, of course, we would, we shake hands. That's probably the, the cultural equivalent, right, to making someone feel welcome. So how do we actually cultivate koinonia and fellowship as a church? If it's not the holy kiss, if we're not going to do that, what can we do? Well, I think the answer, of course, is in our passage. Look at verses 44 and 45. How does the church express and experience fellowship? And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were generous with each other. Verse 46. And day by day, oh, excuse me, 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
How do you and I experience deep fellowship? Koinonia, well, if you read the book of Acts or if you read the book of Philippians, fellowship is really when people who have share what they have with those in need. So whether that's your time, whether that's your talent, or whether that's your treasure, part of the way that we experience fellowship is it costs us something. What did the early church do? They sold what they had and they gave it to those in need. Can you think of somebody right now in our church in a time of need, financially, emotionally? What do you have that you could give away or sell? Has it ever even occurred to you that you could sell something and with that money give it to someone in need? You know, one of my favorite things about our church is we know how to rally. We know how to rally when somebody's in need. I mean, you just heard about it from Liz. Don't you like how like underselling all the things the deacons did that Liz talked about? Yeah, we help this person. We help this person. Sometimes we make meals. Friends, we have made dozens and dozens of meals for those who have lost loved ones or those who are having kids. And it doesn't just, you know, pop out of thin air. Those are people from our church choosing to, behind the scenes, make meals for those in need. It's caring for people like the orphans and the widows. Is there anybody in need that you can think of in your life or in our church to rally behind? And don't mistake, you know, our, our church's ministry of deacons or our love for our community and our world. Yes, we want to give to those in need, and we support organizations in our community that don't have any direct connection to our church. But there's also a sense, Christian, that you and I are supposed to keep an eye out for other Christians in need. Notice in our passage, who are they giving to those in need? They're giving to actual other believers. It doesn't mean we don't give to non-believers. What it means though is we keep an eye out for each other. Listen to how Paul talks about this in Galatians. He says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith especially those of the household of faith. Verse 44 and 45, and they were all together and they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and giving to those in need. You think that has anything to do with why the church was compelling? They wanted to know what the message of Jesus was all about and they wanted to help the poor and those in need and they were willing to do it at great sacrifice to themselves. Friends, that's compelling. The third thing they commit themselves to is my personal favorite, and if you've known me for any amount of time, you'll know I'm going to harp on this, so just indulge me. What's the third thing they commit themselves to? The breaking of bread. Now, of course, we know that breaking bread is going to have all sort of sacramental overtones, right? Because Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper when he breaks bread. But what's going on in this passage is probably not just communion. It actually is probably closer to simply having meals with each other. And look at the passage. Look at how it talks about Look at verse 46. It says, day by day, another way of saying day by day is what? Daily, regularly. This is their rhythm of life. This is just how they live life. Day by day, they went to temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. How do you have a glad and a generous heart? You thank God for the food that you have at your dinner table, and then you share it. 
because your dinner table is where you bring people into your life. This is as human as human gets, y'all. <laughs> uh, I mean, go back to the very beginning of the whole story. God made man male and female. In his image, he created them. And then what was their first job? What's humanity's first job? What's their first job? What do they do? They were gardeners. Technically naked gardeners, like in the Applegate, but you know what I mean. It's different. It was different back then. They were gardeners. And a garden means what? Food. And food means what? A table. And a table means what? Fellowship and belonging. This is why all throughout the Bible, God is constantly eating meals with people. When God appears to Abram at the Oaks of Mamre, and he brings two angels with him, he sits down and he has a meal with Abraham. When God comes on Mount Sinai, Moses brings the elders with him up to the mountain, and they take bread and wine, and they eat and drink in the presence of God, and they behold God. When Melchizedek, the high priest of Salem, comes, what does he bring in his arms? Bread and wine. Or think about when Jesus enters our world to save us from our sin. One of the most controversial things Jesus does is what? Eats meals with people. And then Jesus has the audacity to tell people like you and me, his followers, when you have a meal, don't just invite people who are going to help you up the social ladder, but do what? Invite the crippled, the lame, and the poor. Invite people who can never pay you back. And then you'll have a taste of the kingdom of God. The early church is marked by a profound sense that their dining room tables were almost sacred. That it was a place where they really could invite people into their life. Who do you share meals with? Well, who's disproportionately affected right now by loneliness? Who remembers? Young adults and what? Single people. It may be worth thinking about this summer inviting single people into your home. Did you know, this is amazing, and I can verify this research, did you know humans eat like every day? <laughs> like almost every day, they eat constantly. And did you know that most of us try to eat three meals a day? Did you know that if you have someone over for dinner, you don't have to cook everything? It's an amazing waste of your time to cook yourself every meal. Why not invite somebody over every Monday night and be like, you bring the dessert this time and I'll make the main course. It's totally inefficient for all of us to live in our little garaged homes by ourselves. What makes the church compelling? They'd invite you over to dinner. You know what makes them compelling? If you needed something, they gave it to you. If they saw someone in need, they were willing to give up what they had. And you know what was compelling? They actually believed these were the words of God and they were worth applying. The last thing, and maybe this is the bridge too far, maybe this is too much of a leap for you, but I think this is what this passage teaches. What's the fourth and final thing they commit themselves to? It's interesting. This is why it's good to have a literal translation of the Bible like the ESV or the New King James and not just a paraphrase because most translations will say prayers or prayer. They commit themselves, you know, to like prayer, like prayer, you know, just the thing you do. But that's not actually what this passage, I think, is teaching. It doesn't say prayer. It says the prayers. So what are the prayers? 
What does that mean? Well, if you were a good Jewish person living in Jesus' lifetime, if you were living in real life and you were one of those 3,000 that just got baptized, what were the prayers? When did a good Old Testament believer pray? Twice a day at nine in the morning for the morning sacrifice and then at 3 p.m. for the evening prayers. And every day, if you were a good believer, you would pray at nine in the morning and you would pray at three in the afternoon. This is why Jesus says, don't make it a big deal when you pray and other people see you. It's because no matter what somebody was doing at three o'clock, they'd stop and be like, stop everything. It's time to pray. But Jesus doesn't condemn setting certain times for prayer. In fact, what we see is these early Christians, they maintain their habit of praying at nine in the morning and at three o'clock in the afternoon, the prayers, you know, the hour of prayer. Look at Acts 3 verse 1, the very next sentence after this passage. Now, Peter and John were going where? Up to the temple when? At the hour of prayer, which is the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. for the evening sacrifices. Now look at verse 46. And day by day, meaning every day, Attending what? Where were they going every day? Why do you go to the temple every day? You go to the temple to pray the morning and the evening prayer times to see the sacrifices given. I'm belaboring this point, but what I want to suggest to you is part of the way that you and I live the Christian life, we get out of this malaise, this stuckness that you and I are in, is we commit to knowing God's word, we commit to sharing meals with other people, we give sacrificially to those in need, and we keep our eyes open to those who are in need, and we set fixed times for prayer in our life. It is a very good habit to pray every morning and sometime later on in the day. Think about it as it's just, I'm not trying to make any more of a legalistic point than I am saying it would be good for you to make coffee at the same time every morning. Is anybody here like, maybe I'll make coffee in the morning or maybe I'll make it at four o'clock in the afternoon. I don't know. I live my life in an exciting way. No, you make coffee at like the same time every day. And then if it's not made the same way, you get really angry, right? And then you go buy coffee to make up for the unatoned for bad coffee, right? Why? Because a life, a day without coffee, like what's the point, right? That's how I feel about prayer. Like, what is the point? If you, okay. Why did God make you? Why did God make you? Why did God make Adam and Eve? To share his divine life with you and me. That's why you're here. So God can share his divine life, which started way before our lives started, so he could share the fullness of the glory of the Trinity with us. We are made to become partakers of the divine nature. How did the early Christians operate? They woke up every morning and they said, I'm going to pray. And then at three o'clock, I'm going to pray again. Don't be legalistic about it. But recognize there's something to having a rhythm of life. There's something to having a devotional in the morning at nine o'clock or six o'clock. It's a compelling community. Look at verse 47. What's the result? Daily reading, a rhythm of life, committed time of prayer, selling their possessions, giving to those in need, inviting people to share a meal in their home. What happens? Look at verse 47. 
They were praising God and having favor with all the people. <laughs> it was all sunshine and 70 degrees and the breeze was always blowing nicely, right? <laughs> and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It was compelling. My uh, friends, that's an invitation to step into the light. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the apostles' teaching that we have in front of us. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would encounter it with a sense of awe and wonder. Lord, that we would know that it does unlock the map of how to live this life. Uh, Lord, we confess our malaise and we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us energy, that you would give us faith, hope, and love. Father, we now commit ourselves to devoting our lives to your word. And Lord, not just reading it, but doing it as well. Holy Spirit, we need you to accomplish that in our lives. Uh, Lord, we pray that more and more of us would be willing to invite others into our homes. And Lord, that our tables and our dining rooms would be places of fellowship and belonging. Lord, in that spirit of koinonia, that fellowship that you call us to have, uh, Lord, we mourn with those who are mourning. Lord, we lift to you Lori Templeton in the passing of Randy. Lord, thank you for his glorious life of suffering and faithfulness. Lord, we praise you that he did fight the good fight and he kept his faith. And now, Lord, would you be with Lori. Lord, we lift up those who have lost loved ones and grandparents. And God, would you give them strength and hope. Lord, would they have a past that surpasses even their own understanding. Lord, we pray for those who are sick and suffering and facing terrifying news. And Lord, we thank you for the hope of heaven. Lord, we lift to you Mac Peffley, Kristen Tours, Colleen Eccleston, Sean McCoy, Paul Deller, Harry Gilg, Phoebe Allstad, and Corinne Jennings. God, have mercy on each one of them. Lord, give them many years in the land of the living. And Father, we pray for all of our expectant mothers. Lord, we pray for all four of those lives in the womb made in your image. Lord, we pray that all four of those would come into this world healthy. And Lord, that there would not be a day that those children don't know your grace. Lord, we pray for VBS, uh, Lord, which is not tomorrow. Lord, thank you for that grace that we have many days to prepare. Lord, we lift up all 71 of the kids that are registered. Lord, we pray for Robin that she would have all the volunteers that she needs. Father, we pray for another expression of your body, Community Bible Church in Central Point. Now, Father, we just went through our own pastoral change a few years ago, and now they are going through it. Father, would you be with them during this season of transition? Grow that church. Do far more abundantly than all they're even asking or thinking now for your glory. And lastly, Lord, we thank you for Stephen Kelly. Lord, keep him safe as he goes to Kazakhstan. And Lord, would he always have that same passion for your glory and lead many to faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. In whose name we pray, amen.